Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely Skylight listeners. This is Maddie Gobo, your events manager and podcast host. Welcome back to Skylit. This is our Skylight Books author podcast series where we bring you new books, new conversation uh, from all over the place into the comfort of your home. Today we have Erica C. Barnett. She's here to talk about her memoir with Mayor Roshan. I'm going to give them their full introductions in just a moment, but first I want to give another plug to our virtual events, which are happening over on Crowdcast. If you haven't checked those out already, um, you can find us at crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. All of our events there are free to attend, and they are live streams, so you can join the live stream and, you know, hang out in the chat, say hello, ask a question, or you can watch replays of all of our past events. The full video is available also on our Crowdcast page for everything. Uh, so if there's anything you missed, just go check it out. No pressure, no stress, it's all there. All the literary conversation your heart could desire available for free from Skylight Books. You're welcome. All right, so without further ado, I'm gonna introduce today's guests. Erica C. Barnett is an award-winning political reporter. She now covers addiction, housing, poverty, and drug policy at her blog, The C is for Crank. She has written for a variety of local and national publications, including the Huffington Post, Seattle Magazine, and Grist. Her new memoir is called Quitter. Mayor Rashan is the editor-in-chief of Los Angeles Magazine and LAMag.com and founder of TheFix.com. Erica and Mayor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you. All right, so Erica, you're going to start us out with a short reading from the memoir, and then the two of you will have a conversation. And I'm going to go ahead and mute myself and let, let you take it away. Great. So um, this is a reading from about halfway through the book, um, and it's about um, the time after I left my first uh, rehab, which, spoiler alert, was not my last. <clears throat> um, okay, here we go. When we talk about sobriety or even recovery, the words are often shorthand for not drinking or not using drugs. But the really overwhelming part of staying sober isn't saying no to drinks or learning to avoid the proverbial people, places, and situations that induce temptation. It's figuring out how to live an unfiltered life. That's hard enough when things are going pretty much okay. How many times have you said, I need a drink, when what you really meant was, this day was moderately annoying? It can be damn near impossible when there's wreckage stretching out to the horizon in every direction. So to recap, 
Over the past few years of drinking, I had broken my mom's heart, driven away my best friend, alienated all my other friends with my erratic behavior and constant sob stories, nearly lost my job, and accumulated tens of thousands of dollars in medical debt from emergency rooms and detoxes. I still had an apartment, but only because I was able to use paid vacation hours to go to rehab instead of taking unpaid time off. If my time or my welcome at the magazine had worn out, I could have lost my housing too. I was ashamed to show my face at work, overwhelmed by all the amends I felt I needed to make right away, too raw to have a heartfelt conversation with either of my parents, and scared to, je- to death that Josh would continue to doubt my commitment to sobriety, or that he'd be watching over my shoulder every minute, ready to pounce on any sign that I was slacking off. I had wasted so much time. I had to fix everything right away, but I had absolutely no idea how to start. So I froze. I withdrew to my comfort zone. I worked and went to the gym, lifted weights and worked the phones. And before long, I was too exhausted to keep going to outpatient therapy three nights a week, too exhausted to make it to AA every day, too exhausted to do anything besides trudge from work to gym to home to bed. AA meetings, which I'd attended sporadically since I walked into that lesbian meeting seven years earlier, bummed me out. Everybody seemed so fucking happy all the time. And I found the three-hour intensive outpatient sessions that I had agreed to do as part of my post-rehab treatment regimen repetitive and depressing. A few sad sack losers gathered on couches in a dreary downtown office building, watching VHS videos about relapse prevention and bitching about how much sobriety sucked before blowing into their ignition interlock devices and driving home. Not more than a month went by before I fell back into drinking. Not jumped, fell the way you fall into bed with an ex-lover because you don't have anything better going on. I can't pinpoint an exact turning point or moment when I said, screw it, this is too hard. It was more like an imperceptible slide from not drinking to drinking, from militancy to self-pity to indifference to bottoms up. I was a non-drinker, then I was a drinker again, simple as that. I passed the liquor aisle in the grocery store, doubled back, and dropped a bottle of Smirnoff in my basket, casually, like a vegetarian tossing a tray of ground beef on top of the granola bars. Well, uh, lots of stuff to think about there. <laughs> I, the whole time through, I was like, I could use a drink right now. But uh, I love this book because it was different in many ways than uh, recovery memoirs that I've read just through my life and in my old job at The Fix, which is an addiction recovery website. I've read many of them. I read somewhere that there were 60 different recovery memoirs coming out this year, which is a growth industry. What what made you decide that you wanted to, to be one of them and, and to ha- have something to add to that conversation? Well, I, you know, I think that um, it's sort of encapsulated in that little um, excerpt that I read. I wasn't reading any books about relapse. Um, and I am like, you know, I, kind of addicted to uh, recovery memoirs myself. I mean, if there are 60 coming out this year, I'm probably going to read half of them. Um, because, because I do, I love the arc. I love the story. I love hearing about people's struggles, but the struggle that I wasn't hearing about was the experience of just relapsing over and over and over again, the way that I did. And, and also, you know, I read a lot of women's memoirs and I think memoirs are largely a genre that is targeted towards women. And, um, I don't think that you see a lot of writing about women who have who go to really ugly and disturbing places and, you know, and really um, unsympathetic places. And I think that 
throughout this book, I'm a pretty unsympathetic character because I was a pretty unsympathetic person at the time. And, um, and so I wanted to tell that story too, where people would read about me and not necessarily think like, I really, you know, want this person to succeed because I like her. Um, because I think I was really unlikable for a lot of it. And I think addiction can make you really unlikable. Um, and, um, and yeah, I didn't, I didn't really see that story getting represented, particularly with women, because we're not supposed to be unlikable. Well, I liked you. Um, <laughs> why do you think relapse is so often uh, ignored in these memoirs? Because it's just an inconvenient interruption to the arc or, or what? Well, you know, I think it's um, I think it's hard to grapple with the fact that um, that the addiction and recovery so often involves failure, and people don't necessarily want to hear stories about failure. They like to hear stories of triumph over adversity. And ultimately, you know, I'm telling that story too. So I'm not, you know, I'm not exempt from that. I was able to write the book because I got sober. Um, but I think that that is part of the story. And I also think like, we just really love to believe that, um, you know, especially I guess as Americans and, you know, in a capitalist society and just, you know, everything about our culture tells us like, if you try hard enough and if you work hard enough, and maybe if you spend enough money, you know, going to like enough fancy treatment centers or whatever it may be, um, you can beat this thing just through sheer force of will. And, you know, it's a relapsing brain disease. And relapse is one of the symptoms, but it's not, um, it's not, you know, as you said, it's not a convenient symptom to talk about. And, um, and I think that we don't want to think that we, we, we want to think that we're exempt, you know, and that like, and I certainly thought I was exempt. I thought I was like, going to be able to go to detox once and get sober. I mean, I truly believe that I thought like five days and I'm done. And then six years later, <laughs> you know, I mean, it took me actually seven years to, um, to finally, um, Quit drinking this last time which would make you kind of like most people who go to treatment I, I think one of the interesting things about your book is uh it's kind of a nuanced kind of complicated take both on aa and 12 steps and also on the treatment industry and tell me about your own adventures in treatment <laughs> you, uh, learned as a result of them yeah, well, like I said, at first I thought that detox was treatment, and I think like if you're not if you're not somebody who's had to deal with it, um, you might not even know the difference between detox and treatment. So detox is just going and getting whatever it is out of your system so that you're able to quit essentially, um, you know, under medical supervision and usually with medication. And then treatment is like traditionally it's a 28 day thing. You go away, it's residential, and you aren't allowed any contact really with the outside world. And um, I went to treatment, um, I'm going to say just twice, because most of the people that I met in there had been to treatment many times. Um, there was one woman who was like, like treated it like a joke. She was like, you know, yeah, my parents put me in here like once every six months or so. And then I go out and, um, and then six months later, I'm back and she'd been there 19 times. So, um, you know, I mean, it made me very cynical about um, about the treatment industry and how it functions because I think that it requires repeat customers in order to continue to work and to be as large as it is. There's thousands of treatment uh, facilities in the country. And so the first one I went to was a little on the fancier side, but I wouldn't say it was like one of the fancier ones that, you know, you see like all over LA, for example. And um, you know, in Malibu, you know, it was, it was all women, it was 15 people. And I thought it, 
ultimately was a complete kind of waste of time, except that it saved my life in the immediate sense that I quit drinking for a while. But, you know, I mean, it was a lot of like people shitting on each other, like women just being horrible to each other and saying like, you know, sitting in a circle and saying everything that was wrong with you or calling out your, you know, crimes against treatment for the day. Like, hoarding I remember hoarding was a big one like people would go and they would get cookies because we weren't allowed to eat sugar but we were allowed to go to these outside meetings in a church and so like there was a lot of denunciations over the cookie hoarding and you know it's just it was it was ridiculous it was silly it was ridiculous and it doesn't prepare you for the outside world because nobody is going to be you know denouncing you for like eating chocolate um and then the second place i went was a little was more run down and i actually and much larger and there were men there and it was um just you know it was just a, a very um a very much more diverse um group of people in terms of life experiences and just literally more diverse um and i got more out of that but it was mostly because of exposure to the people there and not so much um exposure to the treatment methods because it was pretty much the same as the first place yeah, as someone who's had my own adventures in treatment, uh, it's amazing by the discrepancies in various places. There's no standard, because it's a, a medical procedure, right? A medical process, and yet, unlike a lot of medical processes, there's not even a success rate. Like, what one of the things I, I find interesting is what, what's success in recovering from addiction? Is it not? drinking or using at all is it moderating your use and i know that's a, a part of your book that some kind of aa purists will find uh really controversial yeah i mean for me personally success was quitting and um and i you know i call the book quitter because i quit over and over but i did eventually like quit and i you know and i don't drink now but I also, you know, I cover addiction. I write about addiction a lot. And I meet a lot of people who are addicted to opiates, to methamphetamine, um, and to a lot of drugs that really respond well um, to, uh, to treatment with, for example, other opiates. And, you know, and there is like a tradition in 12-step that, you know, and I, that I think is changing that, you know, methadone is a drug. A drug is a drug is a drug. And no matter what you're doing, um, it's not, if you're doing anything, it's not acceptable. And um, I have a, I have a good friend who was um, addicted to heroin and, um, and now, and he went on methadone and he got off the methadone, but you know, I mean, AA would say, well, he can't like smoke weed or drink because a drug is a drug is a drug, but he drinks and he's alive. And I'm not saying that I don't, you know, think he should maybe experiment with not drinking and see if that improves anything for, you know, for him and his life. But he chooses not to do that. And he is so much better off now than he was, you know, when he was when he was shooting up every day. So yeah, I think whatever works for you and whatever makes your life better is the key. It's not whatever makes your life compliant with a set of predetermined rules that you have to follow. Um, yeah. And for me, it really, it was not drinking because I am a maniac when I drink and I'm just, you know, I don't react normally. Um, but, you know, but I'm one person. People probably would be uh, kind of surprised when the alcoholics are considered old hat in the treatment industry these days. Uh, more and more, it's, it's all about the opioids and, and how, and that the rise of opioid addiction has really changed treatment as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think that um, I, I'm trying to remember. I think that the first treatment facility I went to did not allow any kind of medication-assisted treatment, and I know that the second one did. So people were getting onto Suboxone, um, and I think that's a lot more common now at treatment. But you know, traditional treatment like still just says you have to go essentially cold turkey. I mean, they'll give you something for the first five days or whatever to get you through withdrawal, but. I mean, I remember at the first treatment facility I went to, it was like there were women there that like just didn't sleep the whole 28 days because they were coming off heroin and they wouldn't give in anything to help them. And I mean, that's just cruel. It's just cruelty. And then and then they're going to go back out and they're going to relapse and they're going to have to. And, the, and the, the treatment for that is more treatment. And yeah. like, meanwhile, you're spending tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars and you're not getting any better. And as we said, standards are different. So you have Scientology rehabs where the <laughs> is going to a sauna for 20 hours a day and taking a lot of niacin. So uh, <laughs> oh, Lord. a wide range of treatment options out there. You also have, like, as I said, this mixed feelings about AA, which you credit on the one hand with, with your recovery, but also find detrimental in other ways. Uh, do you want to expand on that? Yeah, I mean, AA, you know, I, I talk a lot in the book and I try to make it really clear that the reason I think it worked for me, um, you know, right when I was getting out of the last detox that I was in is because I was desperate. Um, I think it's really good for um, a certain class of desperate people, which I was in and like I needed structure to my life. Um, I like I didn't have a job. I was riding the bus all day and drinking. Um, and, um, you know, that's a very entertaining activity, uh, up to a point, but you know, it's not, it's not conducive to getting your life back together. So, so it was really, so that was really helpful, but I also make it really clear in the book that like a lot of the reason that I was able to sort of set aside some of the, um, the more, uh, problematic things about AA is just because like, I have not been traumatized by religion. I am used to dealing with men who want to shout me down um, just because of my profession. And that is a big part of AA is if you're a woman or, you know, I would assume a marginalized person of any kind, you know, you go in these, um, into these meetings and often they are so dominated by men. And, and I mean, dominated, like, you know, they will yell and shout you down and like, you know, talk about their, their bitch wives. Um, and you know, it sucks. I mean, you know, and so I, I can just ignore that. I think a lot of that is due to privilege, though. And so, um, the occasion, don't you think? I mean, that's not happening at my WeHope meeting. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, they're certainly not talking about their bitch wives. So. Uh, well, like I'm in Seattle. I mean, we are like in, you know, it's like the woke capital of the world. But you know, maybe it's just the meetings I go to, or or went to early on. But like, I mean, it, um, it can be very intimidating, and there's a lot of you know, in traditional AA, I think there's a lot of like beating up on yourself and taking responsibility for things that aren't, weren't necessarily your fault and, um, and making amends in a way that is harmful to you, like apologizing to people who really were 95% to blame and in a way that is, you know, re-traumatizing potentially, you know, going back and talking to an abuser, for example. I mean, I've seen people do that and I don't think that's a good idea in most cases. Um, you know, there's just, there's a lot of, and this is, this is what we learned in treatment too. There's a lot of character defects talk. Um, 
And I don't believe addiction is the result of character defects. I just don't. I mean, it's, again, it's a brain disease that has psychological components. Like, so let's break it down. Like, instead of saying, like, instead of relying on a, a nearly 100-year-old book, um, which is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and the scientific knowledge that was available at the time, um, let's look at, you know, the actual science and say, well, no, opiate addiction results because these pathways in your brain, you know, produce chemicals in a certain way and they stop producing chemicals when you start taking opiates. And, you know, I, anyway, it's just, um, I, I find the, the anti-science elements of it frustrating as well. And like I said, I got a lot out of it. It saved my life. Um, but it's because I was able to ignore the stuff that I don't agree with and take the stuff that worked. It's interesting, like hearing you talk about all the chemical pathways and all that stuff. And it makes me wonder if you had just been given that information, do you think you would have been cured more quickly? Or is there some reliance on something spiritual, uh, a crisis of faith, let's say, even if it's not addressed by God, but just something that was more spiritual in nature that was making your alcoholism worse. Uh, I don't think it was. I don't think it was exactly either. I think it was. Um, you know, you can't. You can't um, information yourself out of addiction. I really thought that I could for a long time, and that's partly why I read so many recovery memoirs when I was still drinking. You know, I would read them drunk. I loved them, um, but um, information and knowledge wasn't enough. Um, I don't, however, think like the spiritual stuff that comes later in AA. Um, is it was the issue either. I think it was that I felt like it was going to be impossible to fix everything. And because, um, so that was like the psychological element of it. And also getting up every day when you're in the middle of an addiction and just feeling like the only pathway is like, for me, it was to the liquor store every single morning. Because otherwise I felt so horrible, just, you know, emotionally, psychologically, physically, everything that I didn't feel like I could be alive. Um, and so it was both like breaking out of that and then also figuring out ways to actually fix things that were wrong in my life instead of avoiding them by drinking. Because that's what would happen when I would relapse. I would either self-delude into thinking it was okay for me to drink or I would just think I can't deal with this. It's not until you stop drinking in that way that you realize how much time you spent on either planning for drinks or having the drinks or recovering from the drinks. Yeah, it's uh, all I ever thought about. What would you do for people who are dealing with addiction or have family and friends who are have, having gone through this long, tortuous road to your own recovery? What, what have you learned and what would you suggest to others? I mean, I would suggest starting out like for people who think they might have a drinking problem i would suggest quitting for a month to see if you can do it and like and if that idea makes you laugh as it did me um then you probably have a problem and you know that's that's true of anything you know not just drinking but um and then once you're at that point you know i mean i would say treatment is um it is a tool but it's not a necessary tool and uh, you know i think that the most current science says that outpatient treatment is generally more effective and it also happens to be cheaper. So if you're going to treatment over and over again, at a certain point, you know, you're not failing at treatment. Treatment is failing you. 
And, you know, you can break that cycle and you can still get sober without feeling dependent on treatment. And if one thing doesn't work, you know, I mean, I think give things a chance because I would like quit outpatient treatment programs after going twice because I was just like, I hate these people or they're annoying or I don't have anything in common with them or I'm cooler than them or whatever. And that's, you know, don't go in with that attitude, but if you're going to AA and you've been going for like, you know, a couple months or whatever, and you're miserable and you don't relate, you know, see if there's other options out there because it's not like there's just one path to recovery. Um, and, you know, and I think that's just, that's really important because AA doesn't have um, a good track record of getting people sober, but neither does any, anything else. Like nothing works really well. And what's going to work is going to be individual and it will probably take, you know, a lot longer than you think it will. It might not. I mean, I know people that get sober in one go, but, um, but I also know that like my family was incredibly frustrated with me when I got out of treatment the first time and I wasn't better because they had the wrong expectations about how it was going to go. I think that's most people's expectations. It's like you go and you'll be better. Like it's like a, you go and get surgery or you go and, you know, and I think yeah, it's like a car wash. causes a lot of grief as well. Has it gotten any easier for you? I, I, for people who have never been through this, does it get easier by day to, to not drink or is it still a struggle? I would say it gets easier. I mean, it's not a struggle at all now. Um, and I say that, you know, knowing like I could relapse at any point. Like it's not, it's not to say I'm immune, but like I would say after about six months for me, it, um, something clicked, um, something just switched in my brain and I didn't have the desire to drink and I stopped really noticing it. And, um, even before that, like I am, a, you know, I work in a profession that has a lot, involves a lot of socializing in bars. And, um, and even before that, I was able to go to bars without much trouble. And now I can where it's, you know, it's almost like, um, the wall of liquor is like just a blur. Um, you know, I don't even register it in the same way, um, that I would have early on. So it definitely gets, it gets easier for sure. I, I don't know anybody that it hasn't gotten easier for, and if it doesn't get easier, you know, um, it's, it's probably, you know, it's probably time to try something else like counseling or, you know, something to, to make it easier because you, you don't get sober to be miserable. You know, you get sober to be like happier. <laughs> so, um, I've definitely gotten, I mean, I was miserable and now I'm a pretty happy person. Great. So, Have you heard, uh, you guys can cut me off when this 20 minutes is over, but I'll keep going. Have you heard from people who've read your book either in a positive way or in a negative way? I have mostly heard from, I mean, I've gotten an overwhelming amount of just um, random emails through like my contact form on my website or, you know, just people finding out how to contact me. And, um, and it has been 99.9% positive. And um, the main comment that I get is I did not understand why um, my, you know, loved one couldn't seemed to quit because it seemed like it would be, it was so obvious that they needed to. And once they did, it seemed so obvious that they shouldn't have started again, but now I understand it. And that is like my favorite um, feedback to get is, you know, from people who gained some new understanding about how like their loved one was going through it or even how they themselves were struggling. I've gotten a little negative feedback that, um, you know, just, just from people in Seattle who are like, this is, 
They're yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so like, the, the yeah, it's like local criticism. So it's, it's fine. But people, you know, frustrated that it's not gossipy enough. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought it was super gossipy, but you know, whatever. Some people are always going to be unhappy. So you've made your uh, career in some way since then uh, by focusing on addiction. Is that something you want to continue doing or is this like going to close a chapter for you and you're going to be on something else? No, I think that's going to be kind of a lifelong obsession. I mean, in the same way that homelessness for me is, you know, a related lifelong obsession. Um, and unless we solve it, um, you know, <laughs> it's, um, it's something um, that is very close to my heart because I see people going through it all the time. And like, as long as people keep writing me, and, and this has happened, you know, since before I wrote the book, I mean, for the last five years, people write me all the time and say, you know, um, here's a story that wasn't, you know, that I, that I got interested in because my brother died of, you know, alcoholism or, um, you know, or just personal experiences that people go through. And so, you know, it's just, it's kind of a self-fulfilling cycle. I mean, people send me stories because they know I'm interested in this. And um, yeah, the book really didn't, didn't close a chapter. Um, it, uh, it just kind of put a, put a lid on this one story, but there's tons of other stories out there. Yeah, I was gonna say, don't close that chapter until you write that story for me. That we're yes. <laughs> when will be able to? When will we be able to travel again? You know. Yeah, and and yeah, it's interesting because like obviously, COVID and all the stay-at-home stuff. There's been a lot of talk about it increasing addiction and people falling off uh, at greater levels than before. Is that something you've noticed? Yeah, I mean, I um, I go I go to uh, Zoom meetings, to Zoom AA meetings um, every couple of weeks, and there's always somebody who's like, I was doing great, and then this isolation happened, and you know, addiction is a disease of isolation. It's almost a cliche to say that, but um, I know that when I was at my worst for the last like five years or so, I was drinking at home alone, and my life turned into this tinier and tinier little box. And now we're all living in a tiny box, you know, I mean, both like in terms of Zoom calls um, and also just in terms of living in our in our little rooms or apartments or houses. So, you know, yeah, I think I think there's going to be a really big reckoning after this. And I think treatment centers are going to be overwhelmed. Um, but, you know, I've also heard from people who are in recovery who are, you know, kind of responding to questions from concerned like friends and family members about are you doing OK? And what I have heard a lot is people have this desire to help other people that they didn't, you know, they weren't quite as inspired by before because like, we're all scared that, you know, other people in our lives are going to fall off the map. Like even people who aren't in recovery, just isolation is just bad for you. You know, it's bad for human existence. So um, yeah, it's, it's definitely something I'm hearing about a lot and I'm really concerned about. And just last question, are you feeling in general hopeful about how the treatment industry and the recovery movement is going to progress or, or not? You know, um, I am actually feeling hopeful because of um, some conversations that I've had while I've been reporting on um, addiction and recovery, particularly during COVID. Um, you know, I talked to the medical director at Hazelden recently, and this is just one, one example, 
of a conversation. But, um, you know, and we were talking about kind of traditional treatment and the like shame circles that I write about in my book. And, um, and he said, oh, no, 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 we're not doing that anymore. And he said, um, and, and I'm sure, you know, he, he's, he works at Hazelden. They want to make money. But, um, but he said, you know, we are really moving away from this model that you have to be separated from the world and in this 28-day isolation chamber of treatment and more toward a model where you um, actually interact with the world and you're in there for a few days and then you're like out in the world again. And I think that is so much healthier of a model. And since every Everybody kind of copies Hazelden. I use that as an example because I think that is a really good and healthy direction to be going towards. So, you know, I mean, we're always going to have addiction. We're always going to have um, a rapacious treatment industry, I think, that's not well regulated, you know, until we do something about that. And we'll always have more demand than um, supply. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm overall feeling pretty optimistic about the way things are going right now. Well, that's good to hear. And thanks for writing this. I, I really love the book. Thank you. All right, Erica and Mayor, thank you so much for having this conversation. And Erica, thank you for sharing your story with our listeners. Uh, I think it's really important to talk about these things right now, <laughs> as you were mentioning. Um, so yeah, thank you again for, for being here today. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you wanna to say to our listeners before we say our goodbyes? Any last words? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't. <laughs> no, all set. All right. I think well, good. All right. We'll pick up a copy of Quitter. You can get it at Skylight Books, either online or in person. We're open every day, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. if you bring your mask. All right. Uh, thank you both again, Erica Barnett and Mayor Roshan. And I uh, hope you both have a great day. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.